abstinent from doing the Vipassana for these four days? And uh, let's say, is it is the classic the 10 days or is it 30 days? Just to talk a little bit. Mm. Uh, well, it takes three days really to get into the practice, sometimes four days. And then after that, really, it's up to you. Um, but in a sense, the minimum would be to get a good minimum would be seven days. But then after that, the world's your oyster. Just go for it. Keep going. No stop. <laughs> uh, the classic time in the Mahasi tradition is uh, three months. Um, he said, if nothing happens in ten weeks, nothing will. So you <laughs> need a break. Uh, yeah, that's it really. You need a break. And the things that you would do would it be similar the days to what we do here? Uh, yeah, well, in, in an ordinary, on an ordinary long retreat, your meditation period would be an hour, an hour sitting, an hour walking, an hour sitting. Because I've heard that some vipassanas where they're nearly sitting, nearly all the time. Yeah. Day sitting. Is this, has this been different? Has this been punctuated by a lot of walking? Yeah, no, we, <coughs> in, in the... Um, in some tradition, well, in what, I think the tradition you're talking about is the taught by Goenka, the Ubakin tradition. Mm. Uh, that that tradition, it sort of um, the actual practice combines a samatha element, the calming element, with the vipassana. So it's quite easy to sit with it for long times. And um, yeah, it's up to the individual just to keep going. You see. The Mahasi, uh, the Mahasi Sayadaw taught a system which was pure vipassana. Uh, and there's one or two others like that. And pure vipassana, <laughs> like there's no, there's no joy in it unless it comes up naturally. <laughs> so it tends to be a little bit harder. The purification is, is much more intense. So <clears throat> normally speaking, you'd have two or three days horror, and then a day of a day of peace and happiness, and then the next lot will come up. It really is quite tough. Explain yourself a little bit more. What do you mean by, I mean, what's the physicality of what you're going through? You've been through it. Sitting with yourself, basically. Always, yeah. Uh, In silence. Yeah, in silence. You would normally do, if you were doing a full uh, Mahasi, you know, you would be walking and sitting 18 hours a day. Two hours for eating and and rest and four hours sleep. That's That's the real program. You can do that at Satipanya. (laughs) Uh, but that's not necessary six hours sleep you can still become fully liberated with six hours sleep but uh, but uh, or or, or our money back or our money back (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it's uh, it's um, depends on the individual you see depends on uh, remember that uh, all you're doing all day is calming everything you're not indulging uh, emotional states, so there's not that energy being used up. Um, although you might do some exercise just to keep the body fit, generally speaking, you're very calm, very steady, you see. So, of course, you find you, you do need less sleep. Yeah, you need much less sleep. Now, which doesn't mean to say that when you en- re-enter into daily life that you don't have to go back to to a, a sleeping pattern because just, just the pressure is just the... Just the the energy you need to live in the society. See? Any vipassana to any component for fasting? Uh, well, it's inbuilt because afternoon you don't eat. You see, <coughs> um, 
fasting itself in um, in Buddhist understanding wouldn't be they don't like you doing fast not in the monastic world uh, they don't mind you I mean as far as they're concerned the only reason for fasting would be a process of renunciation I mean you might do it for health reasons of course that's, that's another thing altogether but uh, in terms of a spiritual practice the only thing the only reason you lay off something is to see your attachment to it you know so uh, I think I mentioned it now sitting in front of the TV just not uh, that's a killer that okay. so <laughs> and then you see what your relationship is you see so that's what you would do it for you the, the renunciation is one of the um, uh, one of the great spiritual practices but you do it in order to see your attachment and you have to sit with that renunciation until the attachment dies away see and then so long as it's a wholesome activity you can go back to to doing it but you always have to be slightly aware of how you're relating to it again in terms of a compulsive behavior see any psychological need so what would you do with alcoholics would you put a bottle of wine in front <laughs> 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 you don't want to tempt people too much <laughs> and giving up your attachments Yeah, it's always a very difficult one, you see, uh, the thing is, so long as there's a sense of self, by which we mean, I think I am this form, this human being, right, so long as there's that feeling in us, there'll always be attachment, you, you, there's, no, there's no way, all we, all we can do is be aware of how the attachment manifests, and the attachment manifests always by way of holding on to, yeah, or pushing away, or running away. Those are your basic manifestations. So, uh, a parent, say, with a child, um, when the child doesn't do what the parent wants the child to do, the parent gets angry, right? Now, the anger is a manifestation of attachment, of of um, of not um, uh, of not of of having a, of having a desire to control the child. See. Now that doesn't mean to say that the child doesn't do what the parent wants it to do, right? Because the parent should be guiding the child, right? But the anger is not necessary. That's the point. See, insistence—you know, you will do this. This is what you're going to do. That's necessary. The child has to be uh, trained. See, but the anger is not necessary. The anger is coming from somewhere else. You see, huh? Frustration. Frustration. See, all that's not necessary. It happens because the attachment stays. Yeah? Uh, if um, you know, if uh, little Johnny from down the road gets a black eye, well, you're very happy, you see, because he I mean, deserves it. <laughs> but if if your Johnny gets a black eye, well, all hell's let loose, you know. You're up there knocking on people's doors. So there's your attachment. Yeah? If uh, if a child falls over and hurts itself. And the parent knows that the child has not actually hurt themselves with a scratch or something. Then they're very comforting. See, no problem, you see. But if they think the child's actually really hurt themselves, broken a limb, banged their heads badly, then it's panic. See? Now, you take the child to the hospital. Supposing the, the staff began to panic. It's ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> take the child with a broken arm and the nurses are panicking, the doctor's panicking. You think, oh, bloody, what's, that? what's happening? 
So, so, so you don't expect professionals to panic, but you expect the mother and father to panic. See, so the panic is is unnecessary. That's coming from that wrong relationship. You see. You mean at death? Ah, yes. Well, that of course is a real is a real uh, horror story for a parent. Uh, <clears throat> but the grief, you see, uh, the loss of somebody, the grief we feel is not a measure of love. It's the measure of attachment. See, um, and if you don't see that, then you get yourself into a double bind. Because every time your grief lessens, you say to yourself, "I don't love them anymore." So to make them to to, to re-establish your love with a person, you got to re-establish your grief. There's no end. There's no way out of that. You see. So the grief is the um, is the, you know it's like it's like something something has been ripped out of your heart and it's left you with a rawness, right? And this person has been part of your interior life. You see, it's been part of your happiness, been part of your grief. <laughs> But it's been part of your of your life, and suddenly they're ripped out, you see, and you've just got this gaping wound, and you've got this ghost inside you who keeps reappearing, but you can't. It doesn't grow. It doesn't move anymore. It doesn't. It doesn't. Like nothing happens to it. See what I mean? So it's so. There's your grief. Now, normally speaking, in a grief process, this is what they say. You know, it takes nine months. The first three being quite terrible, and if it goes on after nine months, then there's something chronic about it. There's something wrong in the, in the way the person is relating to that death so I had a, an elderly woman came and she was she'd been grieving the loss of her son for five years for heaven's sake so when I pointed this out to her and I said actually what, lo what real love is is allowing a person to go now if that person if it's time you let them go you see just like I mentioned this morning about the mother with the, with the child who leaves home but they let go. That was their time. And then, when you do that, of course, you begin to rejoice in the relationship you had. It comes up with joy. You see. Well, she was back the next week, saying all her grief had gone. She was amazed because she just got locked into that double bind. You see. But you wouldn't feel that grief if you. Ah, well, you'd have to be fully liberated <laughs> to do that. You'd have to be fully liberated. You see, when the Buddha died, when the Buddha passed, we don't say, we, we usually say, pass into Parinibbana, totally Nibbana. The young monks who were around began to cry, see? And all the elders who were fully liberated says, what are you crying for? It's, you, you knew he was going to arise and pass away. <laughs> Which sounds very glib, you know? But, but that was their relationship to him as their teacher. Is that, like you keep saying there are people who are liberated, is that the, is that the aim, is that the, the intention or whatever? It's to be liberated from suffering. Yeah, that's the aim. Uh, now you have to be careful what we mean by suffering. We're not talking about physical pain. So long as there's a body, there's pain. But the suffering is, you know, depression, anxiety, frustration, the whole gamut of human misery. Addiction, compulsive behavior, all that. You see, all that. Uh, we're completely liberated from because our relationship to... Uh, the world completely changes. We're not seeking happiness there anymore. Why? Because we've found this inner happiness which is not dependent on the world. And that's the meaning of Nibbana. Okay? Now every time you're in that position of the observer, so you're very close to it. Okay? But we always define happiness by an emotional state. See? 
So when you say to yourself, when you say I'm happy, what do you actually mean? If you say to somebody I'm happy, what is it, what is it you actually are referring to? See? It's your emotions, isn't it? It's a feeling of happiness, isn't it? Well, that's unreliable. So if you stop saying I'm happy when you are feeling happy, <laughs> then it's just, it's just a, a, I mentioned Blake's little phrase, and it's a kiss of joy as it flies, is to live in eternity sunrise. And every time something good comes up when it passes, uh, the, the best thing is to, is to feel gratitude, to thank it, see? And then let go, that's it, it's finished. That will never come again. Something similar may arise, but that will never come again. That's the nature of impermanence. Nothing ever repeats itself, see? So if we get in, that, in the attitude, if we get into the habit of saying, thank you very much, <laughs> goodbye, finish you see and then the next thing yes do you know if you're like does that does it mean kind of like do you know the way you said people who weren't in monastery did that but like become liberated but how like do you if you're not <laughs> like how do you actually be in the world and ah well no well that i yes that's a good way of putting it um, in fact, that's Jesus, isn't it? To be in the world, but not of it. See, I mean, that's perfect. You couldn't say it more simply, more direct than that. To be in the world, but not of it. So, um, we've done the practice of meditation, which is about understanding, about clarifying the way we understand things, and about purifying the heart. Then we did the metta, which is about establishing a right relationship, right? So now, you have to take that wisdom, and, and goodwill into your daily life. And every time you walk into a situation, you have to stop and think, well, what is the right attitude for this situation? And just in that way, you move towards liberation. See? So that's the Eightfold Path, see? Right understanding, right attitude, right speech, right action, right livelihood, where we talked about a basic um, attitude of service, that's it and these these things are, are, are sort of feedback loops because if you for instance have um, have an understanding just an intellectual understanding of interconnectedness right you've, you've thought about it and you've seen how everything is dependent on something else everything is contingent everything arises because of something everything is interdependent right now if it stays at that level it's absolutely sterile okay? But when you actually bring it down into an attitude, you're moving towards love, because love is the acceptance of interdependence at the heart level, and compassion and joy. If it stays at the heart level, you might feel good about it, but it don't do anybody, it don't do you any good. It's got to move into action. And as you act from those attitudes, it feeds back into the understanding, because you're actually experiencing interconnectedness. In that way, you spin yourself to nibbana. Without getting dizzy. <laughs> so 25 years, can you say about it? Oh, at least. Oh, at least. <laughs> well, in, in, <laughs> in Buddhism, it's 25 lifetimes, but there, you know, we don't, we don't want to get too depressed. We want to start... <laughs> 
<laughs> you start where you are, and you just and you just keep moving forward. And the thing is, not to you know, not to uh, not to get upset when we we fall over. I mean, you know, um, I always I always always point to um, what's his name, um, uh, yeah, Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire. I can't remember the film it was in, but you remember he's trying to be, she's trying to teach him how to dance, and he pretends to fall over, you know. And they have that song, you know, pick yourself up, dust yourself off, start all over again. That's it. <laughs> See, so every time you fall, you pick yourself. Up. So we're bound to fail. See, that's the point. We're bound to fail. But we keep trying, you see, keep trying. And the failures get less intense. <laughs> Are we not like all heavy here whether we try or not, though? Um, the, the Buddha never says this, right? But you can read into psychology that there is a psychological imperative in all beings to move towards their enlightenment. Yeah. And the reason is that all beings suffer and want to escape suffering. And therefore all beings are seeking the escape to suffering. And that which seeks the escape will eventually find the way out. But the Buddha never goes as far, you see. He doesn't like absolute statements. Because <laughs> you can't prove them if you get into arguments. Just it helps if somebody's got there already and comes back with some sort of instructions, that's all. No, he didn't teach. He, he was asked to. He was asked by both his teachers to uh, teach, but he didn't want to. He said he hadn't really answered this nagging question in his heart, so he didn't really begin to teach until after he became liberated, until his awakening. Yeah, sorry, I sort of meant between becoming liberated and coming upon the Kurus because it seemed like there was. No, he'd been traveling around for a while. Well, he learnt their, well, no, he their um, methodologies, but I don't think he ever taught. There's no indication he taught it. Uh, I, think, I think he was uh, quite single-minded, you know, about trying to. It must have sort of a nagging thing. Yeah, well, you know, the first statues were uh, made by the Greeks, weren't made by Eastern. The, remember, Alexander had conquered all that area, which is now present-day Afghanistan, Pakistan, parts of India, parts of North India. They were all Greek kingdoms, Greek kings up there. And uh, it was about 500 years on, so we're talking about um, the year 2000, thereabouts, that the first statues were being made. And that's why he's got the headgear, 
because uh, Greek nobles used to bring up their hair into a bun. That's why. I mean, he wouldn't have had any of you been like me. Is that like I don't know. <laughs> I don't think it. I don't think it is. I think it was just a, a sign of nobility, uh, originally a sign of nobility. And um, if you if you Google for Greek for statues, Greek statues of the Buddha, uh, you'll see the original, and you'll see that they are extremely Greek. Approximately about the same time, there was also statues being made down in Gandhara, which was the uh, no no Gandhara was the Greek statues. Um, there were ones, some being made down the south of India too. Um, all the postures that you see are representative of something. So that's your samadhi posture, that's your in concentration. Uh, when he's holding something, he's holding a lotus, which is the teaching posture. Uh, when he's like that, it's the fearless posture. Um, he, uh, towards the end of his life, uh, his cousin, who was one of his disciples, Devadatta, tried to kill him. <laughs> so even if you're a Buddha, somebody's going to try and kill you. Uh, and on one occasion, they set a mad elephant on him. And so it said that as the elephant came towards him, he held his hand up and offered loving kindness, you see. And as the story goes, the elephant stopped and bowed. Wonderful. So it's <laughs> fearlessness, you see, fearlessness. Uh, you'll sometimes get like that too, although they're not so common, and that's love, compassion. Um, Although the other one is touching the ground, that's the Bhumi spire, touching the ground. Um, before he became, before before this awakening came, uh, it's known as the Great Doubt. So at that, when he when he went to sit to sit under the tree after all that training, this great self doubt came up. This is one of our big hindrances. Everybody else can do it, but not me. So the self doubt was, who am I to seek the end of suffering? Nobody else has ever found it. You know, like it's impossible. And it's put in uh, mythology as Mara attacking him with his army of hindrances. And uh, he touches the ground to call upon the earth goddess. Uh, touches the ground, uh, in a sense to ground himself. But it's but in, in the mythology, it touches the ground and the earth goddess rises and says that the reason why he has a right to seek the end of suffering is because of his past perfection of generosity. Right, and what this tells us is that he realised that he wasn't doing it just for himself, but he was doing it for all beings. And on on the on the um, desire for the benefit of all beings, he continued his practice. So that's the touching the earth one. Yeah, that's the samadhi one. What about the big heavy one? <laughs> that's the Chinese. Yeah, in, in China it seems if you're fat you're happy. <laughs> so, so the the more fat the Buddha is, the more happy he is. <laughs> yeah, the laughing Buddha. Very good. Yeah. Yes. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Please. I, I just found it was a little bit uh, difficult for me to absorb what you said about all psychological pain is self-generated. Yeah. I, I think that could be a new, a new point because even if you take it, the, it's always your attitude to things. But if, for example, say you've been raped. Yes. You know, really it is not self-generated. I cannot buy that at all that it's self-generated. I think there are certain 
circumstances in life where there is some pain and I honestly can't see how it's self-generated. No. Um, you'd have to... Um, uh, if somebody really harms you, whether it's rape or uh, beating you up or shooting you, or and you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, basically. Yeah, yeah, There's completely. No way There's to nothing to do. This That's right. Um, the only per the only thing a person can do to you is physically harm you, right? And that's that's not what we're referring to when we talk about suffering. Okay? When somebody approaches you with their emotions, their anger, their hatred. Uh, all that it stops here it stops at the point of feeling their anger now what happens then is coming from another center so all the hurt all the anger is self-generated that's the understanding doesn't matter what damage the person has done to you at the level of physicality or at the level of um, uh, the emotion that's that's being generated towards you from them now you can test this out yourself the next time you're with somebody who's really angry with you see if you can just drop into that moment of just awareness and you'll see the anger stops here okay? if you let it in you get your reaction and then you get your anger see and you're hurt okay? that's the understanding and it also includes children, see? Children who are abused and stuff, you see? Inside, what's happening inside them is being self-generated. Now, the logic of this is, if any suffering within me is caused by you, how can I ever be liberated from suffering? It's the very fact that all suffering, and we talk about psychological suffering, is caused by me, that I can thereby be liberated from it. See? Otherwise, I'd have to wait until everybody was liberated, or I'd have to get rid of you. And then I might not. So that's, that's the logic to it. Yeah. And um, because it's the, the, um, the, uh, the hope that lies in that is because it's self-generated, it can be self-cured. That's the point. And people who have been damaged, whether it's rape or, or, or attacked and dreadful all that, it's forgiveness. And then the heart's purified. Yeah. He said, oh, don't worry, I, I'm quite well aware that's a very difficult one for people to accept. Uh, and in a sense, all you can do is, is catch it in yourself and then you'll realise actually uh, all this, you can, you can actually overcome, people can overcome uh, all the hurt and misery that's been caused to them by others uh, by, uh, as catalysts you see um, yeah no it's difficult to accept that especially with children uh, obviously very difficult you know that book um, oh dear <laughs> Marshall, Marshall, Mc, Marshall, McLu Marshall McLuhan, Marshall McLuhan, um, non-violent, non that's it, non-violent communication. Have you come across that book? Yeah, well, he's a great, uh, he's, he's really fantastic. It's worth of a read on how to 
uh, take the violence out of communication and whatnot. He's got he's got really a very beautiful way of doing it. Now he's he's not a Buddhist, but he's sussed it out right there. He'll tell you nobody can cause you psychological pain. Okay. Oh really? Non That's right. Very good.